Welcome to this special episode of Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochuli. Today we're talking about a phenomenon you've probably noticed, a sort of collective hysteria. The world's changing, and some people just can't with this. Russia, Vladimir Putin, Russia, 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 Russia hates Russia, Russia, Russia. Pretty extraordinary thing to say. Uh, if you have a son in the Marine Corps and that you don't trust the commander-in-chief, the people in the military defend the Constitution. You know, that we haven't had a female president before and that we, you know, it's harder for women candidates uh, in executive positions. You know, look, even in the primary, some of what we saw with the Bernie bros had a real chilling effect. We're not talking about uh, stopping Brexit. It's what you want to do. No, it is not. If you stand back from the emotion of this all, it is pure logic and common sense. No, because I was never for a remain leave. It was about remaining if that was the best option. No, I'm interested in the facts. I'm not interested in the emotions of anything. No, 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 I've not had attack. I'm not talking about the attack. No, I mean verbal attacks. No, no, I'm not talking about the attacks. I'm talking about people's experiences of how they feel. I feel like um, as a young person, I mean, I've got a responsibility to say something. I don't really know why. I mean, what do I know? I don't fucking know anything. I'm a pop star. But what I feel, I'm a pop star. What do I know? But it is appropriate for me to say that because I'm here. Because we're at Glastonbury. Yeah. You say you're cynical about politics? Don't flatter yourself. Cynical comes when you know too much. You, on the other hand, haven't bothered to learn anything. Russian, pro-Russian, Russian, Russia, Russian, 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 the Russians. Hi, listeners. You may know someone who vinces these symptoms. That acquaintance who thinks that Putin put Trump in the White House, and also that Russia's still communist. That aunt who keeps going on about deplorables in red states, named her golden retriever Rodham thinks Bill's a good dude, and still has an I'm with her bumper sticker. That friend who refuses to accept that Remain lost the EU referendum in Britain because Vote Leave broke the Electoral Commission funding rules and who bemoans the state of political education in the UK these days, which, incidentally, may arguably have invalidated the referendum result, whose Twitter name is just a series of random letters and hashtags, and their feed a series of Gina Miller retweets and who extravagantly declares they're going to renounce their British citizenship on the 27th of March, 2019. Or your Tinder date who insists that Bernie Sanders is unwittingly doing the bidding of Russia. Yes, it's a sort of derangement of a certain type of liberal that increasingly affects whole swathes of the establishment in the US, the UK, and beyond. There's a prehistory to this, though. Back in 2003, the US conservative pundit Charles Krauthammer coined the term Bush Derangement Syndrome, which he defined as the acute onset of paranoia in otherwise normal people, in reaction to the policies, the presidency, even the very existence of George W. Bush. There were similar cases elsewhere. In Italy, for example, liberals in the 2000s upped the rhetorical ante, calling for a new National Liberation Committee to fend off Berlusconi. But now something different, bigger, is happening. We're living in the world marked by the political consequences of the 2008 crisis. 
You can point to the events of 2011, like the Arab Spring, student protests, and Occupy, or to 2013 and the global protest wave in places as different as Brazil or Turkey, or, most relevantly, to 2016 and Trump and Brexit. Wherever you locate the cause, the consequence is that the liberal establishment's heads have fallen off. Just watch MSNBC or read The Independent. Listen to leading US Democrats or never-Trump Republicans. Try to argue that war with Russia might be a bad thing. You know what I'm on about. What we're going to do here is lay the liberal establishment down on the shrink sofa. Lots of people on the left have discussed, analyzed, or mocked elements of liberal hysteria. Here we're going to offer a systematic account, an anatomy of liberals' inability to accept, explain, and respond to the breakdown of the neoliberal order and the end of the end of history. All right, so we're going to talk through some of these symptoms here. Uh, I've got Ben Fogel with me here in Sao Paulo. We have Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury, UK, and George Hoare in London. Um, I think, as we've said, the fundamental features of this sort of liberal derangement is the inability to accept, explain, and respond to political change. So let's start with accepting, right? This sort of cognitive disorder, the inability to accept political change. I think, Ben, you're going to talk to us about one of the first symptoms, right? Yeah, I mean, like, we have so many examples in the last few years that the sort of incredulity and denial of political change, things have changed, big events. We've got Brexit, we've got the election of Trump, we've got uh, the rise of a, of, the, of a sort of new left. And at each turn, you find people just deny it's ever happened or pretend it was somehow some sort of ru- uh, thing that can be reversed or it's not going to have any real effects. It's like a collective denial that people can just wish and it'll go away. And you, it's not like just random individuals doing it. You see it in like opinion makers, policy makers, people with actual power, guys. I mean, it's weird. Yeah, and I mean, like the, the examples you've given are like US and UK ones. And to be fair, a lot of these symptoms are US and UK ones. But it goes beyond that because, I mean, you know, take an example for Brazil, the 2014 elections, um, which was the, the the Workers' Party trying to win power for the fourth election in a row, win the presidency for the fourth time in a row. The center-right were like, okay, now we're sure we're going to kick them out. They lost, and then they completely threw their toys out of the pram and already started scheming to kind of overturn those election results and eventually managed by impeaching the president. Um, so the kind of liberal derangement goes beyond just the U.S. and U.K., um, like it, it does, it makes- though. I would say, I mean, it it operates in peculiar ways, though, as well. So one thing I've noticed in the UK, in particular, is uh, among the British middle classes. On the one hand, they're you know they, they um, they're attacking Brexiters and attacking Leave voters and the rest of the electorate as being kind of insular, narrow-minded, and parochial, self-interested, not thinking about the great good, our connections to Europe. And on the other hand. At the very same moment, they're incredibly insular because they act as if Brexit, as if Brexit, Britain is the only country with problems, and this refusal to accept that it is part of um, a broader kind of fragmentation and breaking down of the current status quo, and they simply, um, you know, so there's no kind of reckoning with what's happening in Italy, no reckoning with what's happening in Austria, no reckoning with what's happening in France. No reckoning mm. with what's happening in Germany. No reckoning with what's happening in Sweden. Brexit Britain is the only country that's kind of drifting away and everybody else is fine and um, we're the only country with problems. So yeah. it kind of, it's, it, yeah. the incredulity so, expresses itself in different ways. Did you know that reckoning in Dutch means the bill? So <laughs> if you ask for de-reckoning, so there is no, they're, they're not accepting the bill. They're not accepting the bill, that's just, good. 
it's interesting it, may, it makes me think like what do we actually mean by accepting here because some of the it's kind of like the, the reality is not is not entering into people's minds because of course they're it might be just that it's the grief for the uh, the state of the the world where they were these the, the people that we're probably talking about were quite were quite dominant in various different ways and acceptance yeah. in that stages Fair of point. grief model we all know about comes at the end it's denial anger bargaining acceptance uh, bargaining depression acceptance um, so yeah I think what are we what are we talking we're about we're still far we're still far from acceptance, acceptance I think yeah yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean if we just <laughs> if we just fundamentally look at it right now it's if you read a bunch of people it was like everything was fine if only these events didn't come along it's a refusal to admit that the that the set of ideals that have been held up whether it's uh, neoliberal economics, meritocracy, the essential rightnesses of, of the status quo, this whole Tina, can, uh, you know, policy arrangement and political arrangement uh, didn't have negative effects. And in, in, in result, it's basically like we did nothing wrong. I mean, regardless of the fact that, uh, for instance, it's very clear now that Hillary Clinton's election campaign was one of the worst in history. And they lost to a fucking idiot yeah. with no How real mechanism. <laughs> no, and but you but you have this even with with like around Corbyn in the UK, right? You've got these new new Labour hysterics who are like, Corbyn is just a mistake. Corbynism is a mistake. New Labour New Labour can win. What's that? Let's go back. Incredulity. Isn't this a symptom of incredulity though? The idea that Trump's an idiot. <laughs> well, I mean, like, put it this way, like, Trump is the most unpopular candidate in American history, except for Hillary Clinton. It was an easy campaign to win. It's not like... Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I, mean, I mean, it's like, and also, it's not like, you know, uh, Trump was presenting something which was ve- that attractive. I mean, he had didn't have exactly very high voter turnout. It wasn't like there was this huge wave of people who suddenly became Republicans. It was a f- it was lack of voter turnout mm. and a few pr- places that changed. It wasn't like he w- he read and then you know like come on um let's talk about the, let's talk about say um the refugee crisis. I mean, it's not as though the wars in Iraq, Syria, Libya, etc., etc., aren't the driving factor in pushing people out of these places into Europe. I mean, these were started by somebody. Yeah, but I mean, guys, I think this is an interesting point that Ben raises here. I think that's sort of a different angle on the inability to accept political change, which is really about the unwillingness to take responsibility for having created today's conditions. So, you know, New Labour was in power, Obama was in power, um, even the kind of Cameron's new conservatives, if you want to lump them in with the liberal establishment, they created the world we live in today. And now kind of the liberal establishment wants to wash its hands of it. Like Ben's example of migration is a good one. But there's others, right? I mean... Like, you know, the, the personalization of politics which has happened, which now liberals complain about, like, you know, people making a cult out of Trump. Yeah. But, you know, they were doing that around Obama, right? Like, look at the, look at the way liberals react to, like, the photos of a, the Obama family, like, as if they, they were part of that family. Oh, hell, you know, we can go back even further. Remember when, like, Bill Clinton played the saxophone and became the first black president <laughs> after, like, putting record numbers of people in, in jail, especially black people? Or, like, how Tony Blair had to just take a few you know, 1990s equivalents of selfies with that asshole from Oasis and suddenly became Cool Britannia. Yeah. Oh, uh, and I think one of those is the cult of Tony Blair that still persists. The um, the kind of the turning to him now precisely almost because he's held in such kind of broad, with such, uh, held in such kind of distrust. Um, people turn to him in a kind of 
uh, serious, precisely because he's so reviled, people turn to him in a very serious vein and say, well, you know, now we can go back to him and now he's saying sensible things about how we need another referendum, about how we shouldn't leave the EU. And so that cult continues. And again, it's this um, refusal to acknowledge that problems were made. The problems that we're dealing with, with now were the ones that were stored up in the recent past. Yeah, I think and Absolutely. like there was an, an unwillingness to, to kind of win legitimacy for their policies, to win popular support for it. So when, you know, however nasty some of the populist right reactions to this are, it can be understood, at least in the sense that, well, you know, there wasn't that much support for the liberal policies in the first place. Well, I mean, I just sort of Absolutely. I just, something just came up to me. It's, it's very clear in the U.S. right now that the case for Medicare for, for all, which is a universalist med- medical solution to what is the most expensive and decrepit healthcare system in the first world, is popular. A majority of people approve of it. But I remember during the Obamacare years, people like it took a, you know, a Republican policy and barely made the case for it, surrendering, trying to win over bipartisan support to the Republicans. And they got nowhere. The Republicans ended up just saying it was like a bunch of death panels, which people would be sent to the gulag to be shot. Well, yeah, and the, and the, the Democrats never really were able to build a case for like even for Obamacare properly. It was like a half it was a bit of a half-cocked sort of plan. So when when that when kind of the radical right turned against it, they were like, "Oh, how can you possibly stand against Obamacare?" And I was like, "Well, it wasn't the greatest sort of uh, policy proposal in the world." Yeah, I mean, at the core of it, I mean, like if you look at these things, it's like with the case of Obamacare, it was like we are the adults in the room. We have a very complicated policy which we've really thought of that we can win, <laughs> you know, Republicans over on merit. But again, this is just the elites in the room failing to make the case to the people. If you wonder, like, uh, I mean, there is a real sentiment about populist right-wing thing, which is people feel distant from some, a bunch of people who don't care about them, who share different values and uh, talk down to them as if they were idiots. And we're going to get onto that, actually, because we've talked about the inability to accept political change, but they also have an inability to explain political change. They can't really explain to themselves, to the world, why they might be losing. Um, and I guess one way of looking at this is, is moralization, right? George? Yeah, I mean, I guess just to situate this a little bit, this idea that they can't explain um, political, you know, the, the new political situation. Obviously, it's clearly related to inability to accept, but this is the sort of, you know, the pundits, liberal, liberal academics who get, who rightly get a kicking on Twitter um, and elsewhere. But I think, you know, this is, they're, they're reaping the, the the harvest of the of that exactly what we talked about that kind of marketing model of of politics where you don't you don't try and convince people and one key dimension of this was moralization this replacement of politics as interests with you know ways of doing politics and i think the the cl- kind of classic symptom of this at the moment is this um well is it nostalgia but just just looking towards the west wing and the number of people (laughs) who've gone back to re-watch it as this um this kind of safety blanket because it clearly applies at the moment the idea that either doing political decision is a moral one and it's either good or it's bad it's good or it's racist and the west wing presents this vision of when everybody made the right sorts of choices and the people in charge particularly were morally absolute and morally correct in every decision. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the weird thing about the West Wing is it's that uh, it's precisely what we've been talking about. It's presenting politics as simply as a matter of the adults in the room making the best decisions based on the best reasons. I mean, it turns 
what is a game of power and opportunism and money into something which is basically common decency, which doesn't really reflect the fucking feeding frenzy we see in, uh, especially in American politics, to get corporate money. Well, I mean, I guess the the one the the you know, while on the one hand the West Wing fantasy is portrayed as nice rational discourse, the flip side to that is portraying everyone else as being irrational, right? That their desires are just completely um, beyond um, beyond the pale. Um, reflections of just spontaneous desires uh, like ill thought out and i guess this is one way that the liberal establishment tries to explain things i guess one way another way to put this is to say that they don't have a belief in political causation they literally can't explain why political phenomena occur yeah it's almost like you know brexit was a sudden like wind of racism that swept the country and explained it all so i guess my, my my take on this is that they basically there was such an acceptance of there is no alternative that there literally when there was an alternative it's it's beyond the realms of politics it has to be a different sphere of of society or a different sphere of human life so i think you see some some good examples of this so um and this is a clearly a failure of liberal explanation of contemporary politics pundits and and brexit who actually predicted that a um, a binary decision would would go um, one of two ways. I mean, ev- like it was kind of ridiculous actually that there's such a lack of explanatory power um, amongst professionals. Corbyn, his his uh, unexpected rise, which led to a few uh, book eatings, or, or one in <laughs> one in particular. This uh, this idea that you're gonna have to you're happen. gonna have to like flesh that one yeah, out. You have to remind us. This is a great moment. Um, I think I think our listeners can can Google it, but I, I can I can paint paint a picture um, of somebody. Um, who actually I think is now one of the the most um, uh, perceptive uh, analysts, pre- precisely because they went through the literal um, uh, process of eating their own words. And this is Matthew Goodwin, um, who said that Corbyn wouldn't poll thirty seven percent, and if um, he did, then then uh, he would eat his own book, and he, he did. And clearly, he absorbed the knowledge through through chewing and, and digesting this. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> but no, I think there's it, it's it's weird, isn't it? Because there's a there's a flip side to this as well. That and this is you know to return to this to Clinton's disastrous campaign, there was a model from which there could be no deviation. There's no you know p- p- politics can be modelled very very a- algorithmically, and that's how you, you how you dedicate your resources to winning this this political battle. And there's no room for for actually the act actual the political action of, of the party or the candidate is just responding to static um, static circumstances. Yeah, and, and then you've got the kind of self-exculpatory rhetoric where any kind of election loss, referendum loss, has to be explained fr- by reference to outside interference. I, we don't even need to recap too much of the Russiagate stuff because it's bonkers and it's all out there and you can't avoid it. Um, but the interesting thing is that normally... Most of these kind of centrist establishment liberals would see complaints about election interference as an admission of weakness. It'd be ridiculed. So when it's done in Serbia or Venezuela or whatever, they point fingers and laugh and kind of go, ah, ha, ha, it's because you're losing that you're kind of like looking uh, at all these scapegoats and going, ah, well, it's, you know, foreign interference. Um, and it's seen as like the, the sort of rhetoric of paranoid nationalists. And yet it's these supposedly cosmopolitan liberals who are being the most paranoid nationalists, like just with this Russia stuff. And it's, you know, it's not just the US. Uh, it goes far beyond that. It's in France now. It's in the UK and so on. Yeah, I mean, this whole stuff like there's somehow sort of like some new Warsaw Pact being coordinated <laughs> by Putin of all the horrible, nasty men across the world. 
uh, makes them sound like a bunch of losers who are like don't know how to respond that are just don't have like a I mean if the, for all they talk about we're the only ones that know how to win com- as compared to the left these elections because we understand that what the masses really want um, you know it's a bread and circuses or whatever or like uh, privatization and uh, finger wagging but they lose and they're losing really badly like the French Socialist Party's fucking dead the German Social Democrats very is dead personification was coined for a reason yeah they're, they're losing and they haven't even got sick of losing yet um, <laughs> but I think that another angle to like kind of not being able to explain things not really believing in political causation is portraying your enemies as driven by some innate identity which they can't get beyond you know it's not rational so if they treat the left this way as well as if like the left is some sort of identity politics you know it's the Bernie bro um, or Corbyn being driven by sort of nostalgia for the 70s yeah so I mean all the alternative explanation that Corbyn supporters are just thick as pig shit in the uh, headline of one Financial Times article (laughs) yeah at the end of the day if you look at it like we have this phenomenon where like somehow like sensible previously moderate even social democratic policies are portrayed as so beyond the pale so insane they are virtually equivalent to the far right it's about identity it's because instead of saying these policies are attractive to people universal health care renationalizing a failed railway system in the uk it's the fact that people are driven by base irrational urges because they refuse the fundamental legitimacy that perhaps there is an alternative to uh declining public services or a politics driven by experts and speaking of politics driven by experts, this is another angle to uh, to the inability to explain political change, which is the fetish for disinformation, right? Kind of liberals fetishizing disinformation and believing that only kind of the expert media should be able to pronounce on things, should be able to report on things. Um, I mean, George, like, you know, you've got the fake news kind of, I guess it's a moral panic, right? Yeah, it is. It is. I've, I've got the fake news. That's, that's <laughs> completely correct. Um, no, I mean, I'm sure our, our listeners have, you know, have seen this um i guess it's quite a it's a minimal attempt to explain political change um i think you've got to give that to liberals at least they're saying it's social media that did it people (laughs) are um at least like reading their facebook and then being convinced by bots or by cambridge analytica's i don't know exactly how they're doing it um but whatever the explanation is it's it's very surface and the idea is that basically you have you have all of this um, fake news stuff, which then causes people to vote in the wrong way, because essentially people obviously are, are stupid and very impressionable. And there's a lot of um, a, a short Google search, because um, we do do research for this podcast, obviously. Um, <laughs> there's there's loads of there's loads of books on this, but Evan Davis's Post Truth: Why We Have Reached Peak Bullshit and What We Can Do About It. Matthew Dancona's Post Truth. There's a book by Cass Sunstein called Hashtag Republic, which I've actually read a bit of, and it's really shit. Um, <laughs> but the the whole explanation is that you know it's it, it, is that the only there's a correlation between the rise of social media and these um, these changes, and so therefore one must explain the other. Well, and these are all sort of like forms of I guess cognitive dysfunction, right? The inability to accept and explain things, um, but it also leads to an ability to respond. And I guess I mean I think especially with the fetishizing of disinformation, you actually start seeing policies constructed on the back of this. Um, in France as well, like Macron's culture ministry is setting up an anti-fake news agency, um, where I think kind of particularly aiming at targeting RT's French language website, but other things beyond that, you know, kind of being a rapid response anti-fake news thing, which is like 
great. Like, I'm not sure I'm happy with the government deciding exactly what is and isn't fake news. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's another, like, the fake news fetishization has got to such the point there's like basically people even look at these shoddy Russian bots. These were not well made, thought out propaganda campaigns and suddenly give them this huge amount of causative power. And then the end result is like you have people like calling for a big other, calling for fucking Facebook to step in to, to you know, stop the nonsense going on. But rarely, if you can't make a case that beats a Russian bot, a shoddy Russian bot that can barely speak English, what have you got going for you? Right. Yeah. And- Good. But there's, I think that there was, I heard about also, and if anybody can remember the name of this, then do, do say, um, but there was a, going to be an American website, which was going to give its like stamp of approval. This is a non, like crowdsource and kind of grassroots, you know, all that kind of bullshit. Like this is not a fake news um, uh, story. And you can imagine the sort of person to whom that would appeal. And I think that's the sort of person who's probably um, evidences a lot of these other other symptoms as well. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I, you know, Phil, you had some ideas specifically about about elites feeling like they're the minority, which they are, actually, funnily enough. <laughs> well, maybe there, the, there's like a breakthrough of truth, but it's uh, it's the strangest um, it's the strangest phenomenon to see people who are um, you know so wealthy, uh, well educated. Um, uh, comfortable, essentially comfortable in life, are used to being listened to, are public, are embedded in public discourse, in public life, well connected, um, and at all sorts of different levels, uh, from you know from the kind of middle classes and upwards, and to see so many of these people um, losing their minds in the sense of being besieged, embattled, isolated. Uh, surrounded on all sides by mm. hostile forces that they can't understand is astonishing. And that, I think, it speaks to, um, you know, you can only think of it as an elite persecution complex. And that, I think, explains some of the new identities that emerge. I mean, most strikingly in the UK, the identity of Remain being this, um, who feel like they're surrounded by hordes of xenophobic, racist bigots, and that their country, that they're isolated in their own country, um, but also, and this is maybe the most striking of all, is the language of resistance. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Uh, resistance. Because that's strangest of all, you know, to take the kind of, um, to read, to attempt to kind of claim the idea of being in small underground movements, fighting the Nazis in desperate circumstances, and to think that there's any comparison between um, people who voted for Hillary or people who voted to remain in the EU and fighting the Nazis in the midst of the Second World War is just so incredibly unhinged. To claim the label of resistance for that is just, um, I think it speaks to the depth of that derangement. But what's the, what they're actually doing in resistance, I mean, a lot of the time, while they, I mean, I'm going to first acknowledge in the US, there are a lot of people actually doing resistance, organizing against Trump's egregious policies. But the resistance TM is like fucking posting on Facebook, rarely, you know, going deep behind enemy lines, picking up armed caches of the retweets. I mean, I remember, I remember a couple a year or so ago, Peter Dow, who's one of these uh, big resistance leaders, Hillary types, one of her, you know, campaign superstars who lost so pathetically, uh, tried to start like, you know, based on like the idea we the majority, the fifty-two percent or whatever it was in the popular vote that Hillary got. We need to make a social media where we can 
uh, a whole social network where we can isolate ourselves from all the riffraff, all the deplorables, and speak only to each other about the resistance. <laughs> I can't imagine a less effective way of political mobilization than making yourself more insular and like more easy to make fun of. Well, I mean, I think one of the this reaches a particularly like hilariously ironic level when you know you get really powerful types pretending to be really very weak um, and so like I just recently I read a thing where someone's trying to create a European super PAC um, to counter the rising sort of populist or nationalist international okay and so how are they going to do that how are they going to fund this um, we need to inve- enlist the business community um, to defend liberal values I mean first of all the business community is going to go where it can make money I'm not sure it's too bothered about yeah. defending liberal values and secondly if you're going to be hashtag the resistance I mean enli- <laughs> enlisting business to resist political change like you know I don't think it really flies I mean the whole thing is like it's very clear with this causation stuff that we were talking about earlier they don't really have like account of going uh, of what's happening so they don't have an understanding of power yeah, well, and also winning people over, gaining legitimacy for, for their ideas, you know, like that, that's kind of somehow not part of politics for them. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's, a weird, you know, the, the response is a question of to what, what sort of response they actually want to have. Do they want to be efficacious and win people over to their, to their side or they do, do they just want a, an echo chamber? No, do they just want kind of, uh, you know, a bit of um, sympathy, tea and sympathy for the fact that Hillary lost, for example, well, or the fact so that... The way- well, the Americans, they don't drink tea, then they don't get sympathy. But the um, <laughs> the way in which it's brought in is, or the way in which, obviously, the way in which the attempt is to make the case is through hysteria of catastrophe. So um, catastrophism reigns and uh, Project Fear, you'd think, I mean, the lesson would have been learned about how Project Fear failed to convince people in the UK, at least, to um, vote to remain in the European Union. Um, but nonetheless, it just continues to accelerate. And the sense of um, end of days, that leaving the European Union is so inconceivable and that the damage, everything that, you know, kind of, everything from the foundations of buildings to, um, you know, kind of the trains running, electricity existing, water, you know, kind of turning on the taps and water flowing, all of that, if you read the remainder kind of analysis, is dependent on being members of the European Union. Hey, and, and you know what? And if Brexit is fascist, defense. it would surely make the trains run on time, not not make them run on time. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about catastrophe all the time, what it does when it doesn't arrive or the, you know, the promised break never arrives, it's like the boy who cries wolf. People get alienated and they tune out because it's one of, it's like it drives anti-politics. It drives people from being interested in a political system where there's this constant hysteria, but the world is falling on our heads. And it's like when it doesn't arrive the next day, fuck it. Well, there's another thing also about rhetoric, right? If you're increasing your hysterical rhetoric, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you're constantly complaining about irresponsible populists who use overblown rhetoric, lies, um, crazy paranoid claims. You know, I mean, the, the liberals are the ones who actually, in some ways, more introduced this. And so, again, it's another way in which they set the scene for the populist right. They're, and again, they're complicit with the rise of the populist right. They created the conditions for it. And, you know, this is exemplified in the in the hysterical rhetoric as well. Yeah, I mean, remember when uh, George Bush was being compared to Hitler? I mean, George Bush was a really bad guy, don't get me wrong. But now he's been redeemed because he painted a few pictures of, like, veterans that killed in his wars. <laughs> as with a 52% <laughs> approval rating among Democrats, which is higher than his approval rating among Republicans, by the way. <laughs> I mean, this actually brings us on quite nicely to a point that Phil wanted just, uh, to discuss. Just a, just a final point on um, on catastrophism. 
but um maybe as a silver lining of, of all of this is it could lead to some to some high quality art um <laughs> as all as all great pe- periods of, of strife do and i'm thinking of course of, of the nobbit uh, of, of the novel rabbit man by uh, michael para parascos which um you know paints a very compelling picture that as a result of brexit uk society basically implodes and we're all um, dependent on eu food aid so i think that's a <laughs> kind of a children of men for 2018 i think it was 2017 yeah that's so, a business that made like, out, missed out in children of men like the brexit vote right before all the action happened people pretend like nutrition will improve like jamie oliver's like you're getting the mediterranean diet <laughs> no more like fucking yorkshire that- pudding is that the EU food aid they gave to Greece? Like, is that the model for what will happen here as well? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. No, say goodbye to Greg. You're only going to be eat- eating fresh tomatoes and olive oil now. <laughs> um, actually, speaking about fantasies about airlifted in, uh, <laughs> airlifted in food supplies, um, one of the other features of this sort of liberal derangement, and particularly the inability to respond to political change, is a nostalgia for the recent past. I think there's several examples of this. Phil, you, you had some. Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that. I mean, it's um, this is what makes it so unusual, right? Because the claim made, uh, say, the attack on Trump voters is that they're nostalgic for the 1950s. Uh, the claim against Lee voters is that they're also nostalgic for the 1950s, mm. for a time when British society was... Um, less uh, multicultural, less multiracial, when the empire still existed. Um, and, you know, now not only are these kind of uh, terrible slanders against um, against Leave voters and against Trump voters, I mean, because I don't think if you look at all the statistics, certainly in the UK, um, the majority of the population are obviously much more socially liberal in their attitudes towards race and many other questions than voters would have been in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or even 80s. But the thing that makes it really weird is the fact that the people accusing, pointing the finger of nostalgia are the ones who are nostalgic themselves. And they're nostalgic for something which is much weirder. They're nostalgic for the most recent past. (laughs) They want to go back, you know, just kind of a couple of years, a few years. They want to go back just a bit in time. And the thing they don't get, and this goes back to what we were talking about, inability to accept, they don't get that it's impossible to wind the clock back. Yeah. it's impossible to, um, absolutely impossible to recapture the happy 1990s. It's impossible to get that moment of cool Britannia back. It's impossible to get Hillary back into office. It's impossible to go back to the Obama years. And all those things failed for a reason. Yeah. And that's weird kind of nostalgia for a recent past is a real symptom of this derangement. So I guess there's a concomitant section to this, which is that it also involves a rewriting of history. It re it involves rewriting the new labor period in office or the Clintonite period in office as some golden age, right? So, or even or even bits which they didn't like back at the time. I mean, we already mentioned George W. Bush, right? I mean, the liberal rehabilitation of George W. Bush is, has to be one of the weirder things that have happened. Yeah, it's totally fucking, it's totally fucked up, man. But there, I think what, what really brought this home actually um, was a tweet the other day from from Gary Kasparov. Who pompously declared? I've got. I had to save. He's this. a fucking nut. You know that. Yeah, he is. But he, he pompously declared, "I'm ready to call this the darkest hour <laughs> in the history of the American presidency." Let me know if you can think of any competition. Well, he's not Q endless responses. But he's, he's not the only one. You see this in the New York Times all the time, as if like you know Reagan didn't have Alzheimer's in his final years of presidency. He wasn't a drooling idiot, or like Lyndon Johnson didn't force his secretaries to give him blowjobs, or like Kennedy was like <laughs> drugged up and fucking everything inside. They 
American presidency is a lot as a, oh, Nixon getting drunk and ranting <laughs> about how much he hates the Jews while Kissinger bent before him and prayed. <laughs> These were really weird moments. Yeah. I mean, of course, they dropped the atom bomb. That was quite a dark moment. <laughs> yeah, without actually getting to the actually barbaric stuff, you know. Yeah. We're talking just about, like, you know, ethics of office. But, like, the other thing, I mean, you guys, you more British than I was. I lived in South Africa where I had too much history in the 90s. Like, what's with the, you know, like, the New Statesman, The Guardian speaking as if, like, Blair boom times were the coolest the UK has ever been? Explain this a bit to me. Oh, it was a great. It was a great time. The music was really good. It was the was best. Really good. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. I mean, it was. A... <laughs> it's a, it's a bit like it's a bit like boomers being nostalgic for the sixties. You know, it's like it's, uh... yeah, it's weird. So Simon Simon Reynolds. This is on a slightly different topic, but Simon Reynolds' book Retromania is really interesting because he identifies this in culture, in basically in music, this cultural fascination for. The recent past so people can actually normally nostalgia is something that you didn't experience so you sh- so you can't be um expected to remember how shit it was that's how <laughs> that's why it's weird that helen lewis is like reading old blair speeches and getting a bit kind of hot under the collar because it's like you remember how that was not <laughs> the best time <laughs> surely but like if in the, fi- the 50s or or or, or, when, or 20s or whenever you know if you weren't alive then, then it's a bit more reasonable in some ways that you've created this dreamscape. But 1998? I don't know. What? what? Well, I can't I mean, explain it better. I guess it's, this, is, this is why they end up doomed to repeat it. You know, I mean, let, let's move out of the Anglo-American sphere to a different subject and a place time where times actually did improve. I mean, you know, these were boom years. And I mean, Alex, you had some thoughts about like what's been what happened in Brazil in the recent past and the sort of forgetfulness. Yeah, I mean, again, like the liberal derangement thing is a bit different here, but you can see elements as well. So the the kind of the right throughout the recent bit of the Workers' Party in power before um, they were thrown out were nostalgic for Fernando Henrique Cardoso's period of office in the 90s, which was actually really bad <laughs> because they implemented a really harsh anti-inflation policy, um, you know, which saw really high unemployment and everything. And they were nostalgic for that period as like some great liberal moment, actually completely ignoring that act that it was really the 2000s which were much better. So again, this plays out in, in different ways. I mean, the 2000s, you saw 30 million Brazilians leave poverty, which is really something which is like, unlike in the UK and the US where like wages remain stagnant. It wasn't this transformative moment. And I think that's worth that's worth thinking about in terms of the forgetfulness is that the the actual statistics don't back it up. And this is why I guess people are doomed to repeat, right? They're going to do the same action over and over, expecting different consequences. I mean, this is, you know, I guess in psychoanalytic analytic terms, it's repetition compulsion. You know, it's repeating a traumatic event over and over again. And you can see them doing the same things <laughs> yeah. again. Like, what happens yeah. when Trump wins the next election? You know, like... Yeah. Or, I mean, obviously, the call for a new referendum in the UK. The fact that... Right. Um, the people who lost the first one are unable to get around the need to keep on rehearsing the idea that we need another referendum is classic. But also, the um, there's not even an attempt to relinquish the level of condescension the, with which they still um, patronize ordinary voters, still kind of sneer towards them, still condemn them, disparage them as racists, bigots, um, you know, uneducated, incapable of uh, realizing their own interest, incapable, not open to persuasion, not open to reason. 
they're unable to relinquish the the mode of condescension, and that exemplifies this re- repetitive compulsive behavior. And, you know, I mean, that's not to say that there aren't like demographics which are like extremely racist or extremely bad in the Trump case or Brexit case. It's that the idea, as if as if like basically pointing out how bad the other side is, will suddenly give you a different result, or like the fail, failure to make a convincing case, or the fact that people can be possibly motivated by rational reasons. It's this deep. It's like basically the bad people prove everything was bad from the beginning it's like complexity falls out the window yeah i mean i guess if if uh, the first kind of symptoms we discuss here is people tearing their hair out this is people banging their heads against the wall over and over and over again um i think like you have examples from italy again as well um you know they're the the Partito Democratico is like it's an actual party um it probably has more substance as a political party than many other ones do um and yet what is its main inspiration? What is it like the, the route that it's following? It's aping the U.S. Democrats, visibly failed strategy, and is just doubling down on it. Um, and at, at the same time, they're basically just allowing their base to wither away. You know, this is a Partito Democratico, which came out of the old Italian Communist Party. So it has kind of roots. And yet it's just letting it all wither away by trying to ape the U.S. Democrats. So it's a form of repetition and imitation at the same time. I mean, the example's perfect because remember, they originally came into this sort of strategy because of the fear of Berlusconi and they completely kept in calling Berlusconi was the end of everything he was the worst he had undermined democracy I mean Berlusconi was many things uh, he clearly was uh, he clearly liked a bit of fun in the bedroom too but at the end of the day that he kept on winning he kept on winning and now even worse people than Berlusconi like Salvini and them are in power and they're still trying the same shit they tried against Berlusconi maybe in fact, this endless repetition merely leads the way to even worse people taking over the spot. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, the the, the kind of uh, the liberals were appalled by Berlusconi, uh, called for a new National Liberation Committee to fend off Berlusconi, and now formed a bloc with, with Berlusconi against the Lega in the latest elections. So, um, again, it's like a complete inability to accept their role in past defeats um, as they slide ever further rightwards. All right, so let's recap what we've actually got here. I mean, in broad terms, as we've said, it's the inability to accept, explain, and respond to political change. Um, But in more depth, we've got the incredulity and denial of political change, the unwillingness to take responsibility. We've got moralization of politics. We've got the lack of belief in political causation and the fetishizing of disinformation as a way of explaining why things happen. And then their inability to respond. We've got the elite persecution complex, which we discussed at length, uh, the tendency towards hysteria in rhetoric uh, and catastrophism um, in plotting out kind of fantastic catastrophic scenarios. And then there's a nostalgia for the very recent past, which involves a rewriting of history to place the recent past as a sort of golden age. And finally, the repetition compulsion, the desire to repeat over and over the same failed strategies. An interesting thing about this is that it reminds us of an earlier period of political change where a different group of people also couldn't cope with these new things that were being thrown up. Let's look at the 1960s. 20 years of post-war economic growth brought about drastic social and cultural changes. In response to these changes, a similar geist of denial and hysteria took hold. Back then, this was amongst conservatives. The civil rights movement, the sexual revolution, the anti-war movement, and the rise of the new left brought about a period of political turmoil. By the way, for more detail on the 60s revolt and its legacy, check out episode 37 with Catherine Liu. 
So, this wave of social liberalism led many conservatives to believe that the end days were nigh, the sky was falling on their heads. Conservatives responded with incredulity, disbelief. They claimed that their changes were brought about by evil communist conspiracies and mysterious forces beyond reason, animated by a hatred of Christ, the family, and social order. Crazed conspiracies abounded, taken to the mainstream via new organizations from paranoid groups like the John Birch Institute to the new evangelical churches that sprung up across the Sunbelt, promising salvation and prosperity, and also acting as a safe space for those alienated by blacks, women and gays entering the public sphere. The denial, delirium and hysteria that occupy us presently were acutely demonstrated by conservatives back then. But in the 1970s, conservatives reacted with a plan. They crafted a new strategy, built a new base, and championed a fusion of neoliberal economics with the social conservatism that came to be known as the New Right. They took power and transformed the world. But it was actually the neoliberal economics and politics, rather than the social conservatism, that ended up having the greatest impact. That's why it's often said that the left won the culture war, while the right won the economic war. Today, we're seeing a downfall of the order that ensued, of social and economic liberalism. Now let's examine why. Right, so let's unpick the why, um, but also the who's to be really scientific about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very easy to, and it, um, and the far right tends to do it as well, the, to talk about a liberal establishment, uh, an unnamed group of people with power who might not necessarily just might refer to people in the academy. But I think we need to do is offer something a little bit more specific. For me, when we speak of the liberal establishment, we speak about a essentially a network of people within positions with some power. We speak of people who occupy positions within political parties, uh, with particularly in center uh, left parties who have experience in government. We speak to people aligned to this this view within civil service itself. This can include, in fact, elements of the intelligence services, which do have some power, which we've seen, and also other people with some position in the civil service. Secondly, we can also speak of, uh, outside of this, people who occupy similar positions in non-state actors, whether it's in the media, prominent columnists and editors, uh, who shape opinion and have to be an extent embedded within a political project, whether it's New Labour or the Democratic Party. We can speak about uh, people within the wider cultural industry, such as Hollywood celebrities who become voice pieces for this worldview whenever they need somebody with some sort of credibility or mass following to somehow pontificate. And uh, we also have to speak about think tanks and NGOs, crucial to the way that these uh, politics, especially these focus group politics have characterized third way uh, liberalism, have been these NGOs, these endless people who have expertise and think tanks who do these polling, these focus groups, who actually then get called to run the campaigns when it comes to election mm-hmm. season. And these people have a... What unites a lot of these people is they have a vested economic and political interest in keeping this narrative going. Because in the case, if you're an NGO or think tank guy, you're going to justify having a job, even though you messed up the Hillary campaign, for instance. Or if you're an immediate editor, it's against your interest to uh, argue against the politics that you've made your identity and your project about excluding. And of course, in the case of a center-left party, when you have people who like Yvette Cooper or Owen Smith, remember that guy, uh, failed candidate, uh, extraordinaire, 
if they admit that they were wrong and their politics was wrong, they lo- stand the risk of losing their position within the party. So what we want to say, it's not the hysteria is underground by the insecurity of these people in these in these networks. And there is a political and economic factor which makes them defend these groups more so than just collective irrationality. And to add to the sociology of whom this affects, I think we have to talk about the generational aspect because fundamentally who this ends up affecting is a generation of people who never had to fight political battles. It's the generation of post-politics. It's people who came of age towards the end of the 80s, through the 90s and 2000s, and whose vision of politics is fundamentally shaped by the sort of post-politics or post-democracy or post-history period that reigned um, in that time. And now basically can't cope with the return of big political events, can't cope with the return of history or the end of the end of history, um, that suddenly there are political battles to be fought and their mode of operating just does not work in the new context. Yeah, you can really see it. They just don't know how to argue anymore. They don't know how to argue against the left. All their life, they've been the good guys who've been arguing against the nasty, crazy Republicans or Tories. So I think it, one of the key aspects of their, of their intellectual formation is that but essentially, this this whole group they have no theory of power. So we talked a little bit about the the, the kind of the messed up a, approach to political causation, um, and I think this is right at the core of it. And we we were talking about this this earlier that this is the the reason why they seek out a smoking gun to try to explain things or or, or like these these um, or try to incriminate their enemies through through these ridiculous explanations. And it's essentially because the the way that they understand what politics is and how um, the social basis of politics lead to representation and political action doesn't include a theory of power, which obviously approaches like Marxism do or, or, or ones which actually start with with some of the economic analysis. And that's obviously trickier because you can't just say Russia did it, bots did it. But that's obviously what we endeavor to do to a, to a certain extent in this uh, this podcast and outside. Yeah, I mean, it's not so hard to say that, for instance, the communities that voted uh, leave um, were often in the most impoverished and left behind regions of the UK, which is a direct consequence of uh, political decisions made by New Labour, for instance. What I think the, um, so we mentioned power, we mentioned responsibility, and I think both speak to the underlying condition um, of infantilism. So the inability to accept your role in something, the inability to take responsibility, the inability to identify um, who is actually in charge, the inability to identify who is responsible, the inability to identify power, all of that speaks to effectively childishness. And I think, you know, some of this childishness, I mean, some of this political childishness is visible in the manifestations of the hashtag resistance of the opposition to all of these phenomena. And perhaps, I mean, nothing was more revealing of the infantilism than the accusations of infantilism, right? So when you think of the big Trump baby balloon um, <laughs> around the Stop Trump march in the UK during the during during the US president's visit, um, I think that, you know, it was so facile and ridiculous. It would only be, it would be childish in itself. I mean, no, there was no denunciation of any specific U.S. policy. There was no um, specific kind of criticisms of the U.S. presidency. There was no um, criticisms of whatever the U.K. might be doing with the U.S. that you could call out for criticism. I don't know, say the war in Yemen, for instance. Instead, there's just um, 
throwing kind of throwing these symbols around and linked to that i think in same infantilism is the ability to accept outcomes and and this i perhaps this is the most thing that gives it away the most as childishness is this desire for external authority to resolve problems mm-hmm. so you have the um the hope the secret hope that the deep state in the u.s is somehow going to resolve or limit contain and perhaps even covertly sabotage undermine trump the cia the fbi the joint chiefs of staff um in the uk the hope that i mean even you know even occasionally you get kind of people um whispering not even whispering but even openly hoping that the queen intervenes in some grand kind of constitutional gesture there's some kind of crisis which forces a you know, government of national unity, um, that the EU kind of steps in with greater force and coercion to force us back in this desire for external authority to intervene in the political process. And obviously the demand for the Electoral Commission to um, result, you know, for us to have another Brexit referendum because the Electoral Commission has decided the first one was phony for some reason because Leave, you know, spent too much money and even though Remain actually spent much more. Um, so all of these, I think, all of this speaks to childishness, effectively political childishness in a very serious and profound way. Well, it's it's funny, so, be- it's funny because, um, you know, a lot of the kind of liberal establishment will mock the alt-right for calling Trump daddy. But the whole time, they're hoping that daddy comes in and saves them, right? They're hoping that the deep state kicks out Trump. They're hoping that uh, they're the hoping courts that overrule gay, on Brexit. They're hoping that their gay liberal pink daddy comes in to <laughs> kick daddy's ass. That's what they want. And I mean, Bill, you, you, you forgot to mention the endless Harry Potter analogies. Oh God. So, I mean, that's... You know, read read another book which is not a children's book. I mean, it, it, it's even Come affected on. sections of the of the former far left, where like in Italy, Antonio Negri called for Merkel to step in and sort out Europe, to sort out Italy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like part of this, the scary thing about all of this is that um, when in some cases, like in the US, you would want an effective opposition, even if you don't necessarily agree with their politics, against Trump to try and limit some of the damage he's doing with uh, his sort of very xenophobic and very violent policies. Instead, they've st- taken this infantile, ineffective political response, which is helping him. It's helping him win. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, and something that distinguishes these liberals, these contemporary liberals from some liberals in the past uh, is something that I referred to in the point that I made about generations a second ago, is that they're used to a sort of way of doing politics, which is effectively post-democratic, right? And one way that they do this is putting people in fixed marketing categories, right? Everyone exists in these little boxes, which can then be polled, uh, and then each little box acts as a sample for a larger set of the population, and everybody's fixed in these. You know, you might get your left behind in in like provincial post-industrial towns, you get your blah, blah, blahs and the blah, blah, blahs, and everyone votes in their own way, and that's all that there is to politics, and it's just about shifting the boxes a little bit. The problem is, is that sometimes unexpected things happen, and unexpected things happen if you're a post-democrat, if you work in the world of post-politics, is that when unexpected things happen, you tear your hair out instead of actually trying to understand what the fuck is going on. Um, so, you know, liberals assume that people must be lying to pollsters or that they have some image of a seething, unpredictable mass um, that's increasingly escaping measurement, escaping their tools of post-politics. Um, and it ends also, up, you know, it's just a way of divesting their opponents of any sort of rationality or the idea that people might be won over by arguments or that they might change their political opinions or might enter different camps or, you know, just effectively that politics might be dynamic and fluid. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's that's an absolutely key point, isn't it? That the the model of the political party, and this is Peter Mayer's point, is is one of just responding to these fixed categories and the idea of representation, catalyzation of interests and leadership and changing people's people's minds is one which just basically doesn't compute to this this particular liberal mode of of, of, of politics. In some effect, it's like the Democratic Party has never really been a real party. It's always been a collection of interests that come together during elections. It doesn't have branch meetings, solid identity or political education. And But in Europe, where you have a tradition of mass parties, beginning with the Social Democratic Party mentioned earlier, uh, that had strong party identities and traditions and branch levels, the modernization of the political system was portrayed to be more like the Democrats. And we've just seen the colossal failure that modernization is actually less modern because you just have these weak things with no identity and no real base. And I think linked to that is um, the abandonment of liberalism in the name of liberalism. And maybe most telling example of this behavior is um, uh, one example from uh, Britain is the People's March. So this was the demand for a second EU referendum. And the fact that it very self-consciously and explicitly aped what it took to be um, the discourse of leave of populism and adapted it for its own. So the people's vote, uh, we want a people's vote, it's a people's march, um, taking, in fact, popularizing itself effectively. So that liberal, what you get, in fact, is a kind of yuppie, yuppie populism or simulacrum of, um, of populism. And again, it speaks to the fact there's total inability to um, accept, explain, and respond to the actuality of the Leave vote. And, you know, the most obvious kind of example of that is in France. So you have liberal, a liberal strongman in the form of Macron who um, puts together this party from the kind of wreckage and ruin of the socialists and uh, French liberals. It's highly personalized. You know, famously, his party on Marche has his um, monogram as its initials, EM. It's based around this incredibly strongman vision, which is exactly what the liberals accuse populists of doing, of kind of longing for authoritarian strongmen to seize charge and wield executive power to get things done. So what you have effectively is the people who are contributing to the erosion of all the political and social gains of liberalism are the liberals themselves. Mm. And again, mm. their failure to actually concretely respond to the problems that populism is a symptom of. Absolutely. And just like summing up, I think, you know, the, what gives rise to all these symptoms is a dislocation of the old order, which is always frightening. But I think previous instances didn't happen in a period in which uh, we were, you know, that, that sort of history was taken to be over, that questions were taken to be settled um that's i think what causes people's brains to explode a little bit today is that it happens in a period where people think well we don't really have to fight these battles again and suddenly having to refight political battles uh leaves them completely at sea and there's another thing i think as well which ties to the point that phil just made about liberalism normally it was conservatives real conservatives who balked at change but now it's liberals suddenly being faced with change. And normally they're the guys who are like pro-change. They like change. They like modernization. But suddenly when it's not exactly in the way that they want or the way that they foresee, they can't cope with that. They can't accept it. They can't explain it. And they can't respond to it. But that's all the time we're going to have today. We are back actually on a very similar theme next time round when we're talking about the more historic contradictions of liberalism, when we examine the work of Domenico Losurdo and especially his work on liberalism. Catch you later. Bye-bye.
what what is this thing called? You know, we, we've we've thrown out a lot of words. We've thrown around like moralize, moralization, paranoia, uh, derangement, hysteria, uh, delusion, infantilism. Exactly, but but you know, I think that we've we've pulled together a lot of strands, and it should be given a name, really. So what I was going to, the name that came to me, I don't know why this name came to me, but it's, um, I think, one that kind of captures the syndrome. Perhaps paranoia at the end of neoliberal syndrome. How about that? The acronym for the for this particular kind of malady would be PINOS. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. But I mean, like, the, the words there are important. But I think the, the thing about that is that it's not just paranoia, right? There's other there's other symptoms. Well, you don't like Pinos, Alex. You don't like Pinos, no. <laughs> that's that's well, that, that's another issue I have with it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I guess if we were unpick it, right? It's it's the liberal establishment, right? And it's a breakdown of the liberal establishment. And like, I guess syndrome is is the right term to use because it's a it's a collection of many different symptoms which might have different causes, but all come together to form one thing. And it's a kind of postmodern thing, right? So it's like a postmodern liberal establishment. Breakdown syndrome. It's plebs, plebs, plebs of the problem. <laughs> no, no, we don't have that. It seems a little bit wordy. Uh, end of neoliberal syndrome. Eno. Come to think of it, like neoliberal order is not over. I mean, neoliberalism is still here. We don't have much of an alternative yet. Right. So maybe if we talk about more about the liberal establishment, it's a breakdown of the liberal establishment. B L E. We need another letter. Blair. But hy- hysteria. Blair. Blair. B-L-E-H. Blair. Blair. It sounds like Blair. man. Blair. Oh, it sounds like Blair. Like Tony Blair. Yeah. That, like that could work. Oh, there you go. My so my suggestion, which was actually is actually rereading it, isn't that good. Neoliberal tantrum disorder doesn't have a good acronym like all the others no. do. So there's nah. no joke there. No. It's just never going to get off the ground. It doesn't have good branding. It's terrible. I mean, you know. The, <laughs> Oh, back on. <laughs> no, I no bad ideas in a brainstorm. Uh, except for that one, but like, uh, I mean, <laughs> right. So, what if we just have like the neo, neo, neoliberal order breakdown? Neo, it's because it's a breakdown of the neo breakdown of the neo BNO doesn't really. So, what about neoliberal order breakdown syndrome or NOBS knobs? Well, I mean, you got a case uh, of the knobs. I, I like it. There's a bunch of knobs promoting this shit too. <laughs> I mean, who could be more of a knob? Was a guy Dan Hodge? Dan Hodges. Dan Hodges has a bad Dan case Hodges. of the knobs. He I has mean, a yes. clear, like a fucking terminal case of the knobs. Yes, yes. It's like how can one man be so wrong so many a times terminal, without realizing a it? Terminal case of the knobs. He is, I mean, he is a knob. There we go. Well, maybe, maybe we'll go with that. 